hormone harmony is not just a supplement for women going through perimenopause, menopause, or postmenopause. It's become a phenomenon. Women cannot stop talking about it on social media. A bottle of hormone harmony is sold every 24 seconds. Happy Mammoth, the company that created Hormone Harmony, is dedicated to making women's lives easier. That means using only science-backed ingredients that have been proven to work for women. They make no compromise when it comes to quality, and it shows. Hormone Harmony contains science-backed herbal extracts called adaptogens. Now, here's the beauty about adaptogens. They help the body adapt to any stressors, like chaotic hormonal changes that happen naturally throughout a woman's life. So, Hormone Harmony isn't just for menopause. Any women with symptoms of hormonal imbalances can take it, but it's perfect for those with those horrible menopause symptoms that put a woman's life on hold. Hot flashes and night sweats, racing thoughts and low moods, poor sleep and feeling tired all the time, occasional bloating and gas, no desire to be in bed next to someone, if you know what I mean. Yeah, Hormone Harmony can help with all of these things. And the biggest benefit feeling like myself again. And that's what women mention over and over in the reviews. There are over 17,000 reviews for Hormone Harmony. For a limited time, you can get 15% off your entire first order at happymammoth.com. Just use our code, which is the acronym of the podcast, T-S-N-O-T-Y-A-W at checkout. That's the podcast acronym at checkout at happymammoth.com calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Hi there and welcome to my show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm your host, Bianca Murray. Today's guest is an editor who joined Putnam in 2014. She has edited New York Times bestsellers The Silent Wife by A.S.A. Harrison, The House at Tyneford by Natasha Solomons, The Light We Lost by Jill Santopolo, and Where the Crawdads Sing by Delia Owens, among others. She is the first editor to have two books selected by the Reese Witherspoon Hello Sunshine Book Club. Keeping this in mind and the phenomenal success her authors have had, I've come to think of her as the bestseller whisperer. It's my enormous pleasure to welcome Tara Singh Carlson. Hi, Tara. Thanks so much for taking the time out to be with us today. Thank you. Hi, Bianca. I have to start off by saying I don't know how much I've earned the bestseller whisperer title, but I will wear it proudly during this podcast. Get a crown made and, and a badge. and, and <laughs> Right. <laughs> In fact, get a sash. If I was you, I'd make everyone call me that. Seriously. So let's talk about Where the Crawdads Sing by Delia Owens, because it's just been such an amazing publishing phenomenon. The book was released more than two years ago on the 14th of August, 2018. Tell us how long it's been on the bestseller lists and how unusual this is. 
So it's been on the bestseller list 104 weeks, which is two years exactly, It which is insane. And it has actually, of those 104 weeks, been number one for 54 of those weeks. So for more than a year, which is, it's incredible. I actually tried to find out what the record was for the longest amount of time on the bestseller list and the longest amount of time at number one and was told that the New York Times doesn't actually keep those records. So I don't know, but it's, it is extremely unusual. And I think it has a chance at ending up being the best-selling book of the decade, which just blows my mind. And it's a very unusual trajectory because its first two weeks, it wasn't on the list. And then it didn't hit number one until six months after it had been published, which is just very unusual. Readers were just coming to it. I was sobbing <laughs> when we got the news. And so was Delia. It, oh, it's what you dream about. It's what every writer dreams yes. about. I read somewhere, but I can't remember where, that most books have got four months in which to make a splash, after which they will fade into obscurity. Does that stat sound right to you? Uh, that sounds generous. I feel like I've been told books have eight weeks, <laughs> which is, I mean, which is deeply depressing. And as an editor, I have to kind of tell myself that that's not true. Otherwise, it would be too depressing to do my job. I mean, but I do kind of think two months is the amount of time probably when bookstores are going to start. I, I don't know the exact timing of when bookstores start to do returns. I don't even know if everybody knows that bookstores can return the books that they've ordered. But I think, you know, once your books aren't on the shelves, it's very hard for readers to find them, even with the growth of digital and online. So discoverability is really a buzzword in publishing. And the discoverability for your book, I think, is highest the closer you are to publication. Which just shows how unusual Delia's trajectory has been. Could you tell us how you acquired the novel? Because often there's these buzzy novels that everyone's fighting over and there's a bidding war. Is that something that happened with this novel or was it a more quiet acquisition? So it was a fast acquisition that I preempted before anybody else really had time to <laughs> jump on board. So the time in which I read this book was, I think my mental state during that time is also just very telling because it was, I think, two months after I had my first child and I was suffering from pretty severe postpartum anxiety and I was in kind of a fog and only really incredible emotional reads were kind of breaking through that fog. And so Delia's book, and there's one other book that I acquired called We Must Be Brave, which also became a New York Times bestseller. Those were the two books that broke through the fog and that I ended up loving. And so I think I just read it, absolutely fell in love with it. I shared it with my team. Our publicity director, marketing director, and editorial director all read the entire book within, I think, a night or two and also really loved it. So then I called the agent, Russ Galen, and made a preemptive offer. And a preemptive offer means I'm trying to get him to accept the offer and not even tell any of the other editors that it is happening so that I can kind of sneak it out away from them. And I was very lucky that he you know, after some negotiations, some back and forth, and I did get to speak to Delia before, actually before I even made that offer to make sure that we were simpatico and he accepted the offer and it was just smooth sailing from there. I was thinking you would not want to be the editor who turned down where the crawdads sing. If it had been like a, a submission that went out to multiple editors and some of them turned it down and you were the one to pick it up, I think those editors would be banging their heads against the wall for all eternity. Every editor does have that, that we all keep track of the ones that we turned down that went on to be huge successes. So 
uh, I definitely have that list in the back of my own head. But I also tell myself every successful book means that it ended up with the right editor at the right imprint to be published at the right time. Because if I had tried to publish whatever it was I turned down, it wouldn't be the same book. That's what the comfort that I get tell myself in the you know the cold nights of winter. I believe a book and an editor are kind of like soulmates. It has to be the right editor for the right book at the right time. So I definitely agree with you there. There's so much buzz around debut fiction authors. And it's generally around younger people, generally debuts that come out by writers younger than 30 years old. When you looked at this manuscript of Delia's, Delia sold this to you in her late 60s. It came out, I think, when she was 69. So she probably sold it when she was like 67 or 68. Was that something that you looked at? Is it something editors keep in mind? And I mean, there shouldn't be this kind of ageism in any industry, but I'm pretty sure it does exist. I have heard that, but I think I would consider myself kind of age agnostic when it comes to my read, because I actually often will try not to read the biography of the author before I read the submission, because, you know, a lot of times the agent will highlight all of their accolades, um, you know, or they got an MFA at the Iowa Writers Workshop, or they studied with X, Y, and Z person published in X, Y, and Z place. And that can color your emotional reaction to the read because you want to love it because they had all this. So I often try not to read that before I read the submission so that I can have kind of an unbiased experience of the story. So I think that's what happened with Delia. And then I went and read her biography and I was so fascinated by the experience that she had had. And I saw how clearly that read into, you know, what she wrote and inspired what she ended up writing and where the crawdads sing. And for anyone who doesn't know, it was she spent more than two decades studying wildlife in Africa and had really devoted her career to that, had written together with her then husband three nonfiction books. So she had a lot of life experience. And in the end, that actually was of interest to our publicity director before we even acquired the book because there had been press about her previously and we knew that she would have a really interesting story to tell. So in that way, I actually think that Delia's life experience lended itself well to her publication, even if it wasn't something I was initially thinking about when I acquired. I love hearing that you don't read that up front because so many authors feel this pressure to build up this huge bio that gets sent out to editors. And when I teach creative writing, time and time again, I come back to this with my students. It's that publishers want a good story well told. And the origin story is great because it helps publicity and marketing, but it isn't necessary in terms of getting somebody to buy your book. If it's a damn good book, somebody's going to want to publish it. I think that's right. I like to think that's right. What was the editing process with Delia like? How different was the finished manuscript after you worked on it compared to how it was in the beginning? Did it start off really, really well polished and you just guided her in certain ways or was there a lot of backwards and forwards? I mean, it was a gorgeous book to start with. Delia's writing is just so beautiful. That opening scene, uh, that opening writing about you know what is marsh versus swamp, all of that language, that was all Delia and that was all there. And I hesitated really to mess with it too much. But we definitely did shaping of the story. I almost always do at least three rounds of edits with an author and then sometimes many more with Delia. I think it was probably three and then maybe a a fourth polish. But one of the things that we changed was in the novel, the character ends up being on trial. I don't want to give any spoilers away, but she ends up being on trial. And there are a number of scenes that happen in the courthouse. And in the original novel, the point in time at which that character 
ended up on trial was much earlier. And so you were getting a lot of the scenes from her life in flashback. She was sitting on trial in the witness box thinking about what had happened. And it just made everything feel a little bit passive. So one of the bigger edits that we made was changing the point in time at which these two parallel stories, because there's the story of this character's childhood to the present day. And then there's kind of the story of the mystery of that dead body at the beginning. And the point at which those two stories met, we made come later so that you were experiencing both of the stories in real time for a longer period of time. And then I also, I really hated, hated, hated the love interest, like so much that I didn't understand why Kaya would ever be with him. And so I had to get, I was like, Delia, please make me believe that I would think that Kaya would actually be with this man for any reason at all. So we we worked on making him less hateful, even though he still, I think, remains a pretty villainous character. But those were the, the two big things that I really remember. I love that you spoke about that backstory and, the, you know, how passive backstory is, because this is something that I think beginner writers grapple with the most is mm. that, you know, they will start writing. And sometimes in less than 10 pages, we're already dealing with all of this backstory. And it's so much more powerful when we are with the character going through what they're going through, as opposed to seeing it through this filtered lens and knowing it's something that happened in the past that they've already come out on the other side of it. Yeah, that's a problem that it's not infrequent to see. And it can be hard because it's in as a writer, I think it's a shift in perspective. How is your character thinking or experiencing things? When an author can really pull it off, those are the kind of edits that I love to work through because it's so fun to see how it changes the experience of the read. And as a writer, I've come to really enjoy my edits. In the beginning, I hated rewrites, absolutely loathed them. And now to get an editor looking at my work and giving me that kind of feedback, that's where the magic happens. So um, yeah, it's a hard relationship, isn't it? Between author and editor, there has to be so much trust. That's what I'm constantly trying to tell my authors is, please know that the more line edits and the more redlining that you see, it's even more proof of my love of your book, because that's time that I spent not playing with my kids. <laughs> Absolutely. It comes from this place of wanting to make the work better. Yeah. It's another thing I say to my students is get a core group of people who are invested in your work, who are committed to making it better, not turning it into something else. And that's where the magic with an editor comes in, is that as a writer, you're thinking, these are my words, they're fabulous. Why are you taking them out? I spent three days on this one paragraph and now you've just cut it. But once you work through the whole process, it comes out so much more polished on the other side. And like you say, it's all about trust. Books that publishers anticipate will do very well, tend to get pre-publicity tours where authors get to meet booksellers and librarians and influences, and they tend to get a higher print run initially. I'm not sure if Delia got a pre-pub tour. I know that the initial print run was about 28,000 copies. Did the book get a lot of buzz prior to publication? Did you in any way anticipate that, that it would do that well? I don't think there's any way to anticipate a phenomenon. I feel like that's part of the definition of phenomenon. It couldn't have been foreseen. But I knew how much I loved the book. I knew how much other people had responded to the book. But be 
beyond that, sadly, I think with every single book that I publish, I just sort of like cross all my fingers and toes and say a prayer. I'm like, please find your readers. I think with Delia, as you said, it was about a 28,000 copy print run. We shipped about, I think, close to there, maybe 20, you know, just below that. Every editor has like different thoughts about what's a good ship number. I thought that was a, a help, you know, it wasn't huge like you get from some people, but it was, it was nice. It meant that there were books out there. I mean, of course, the thing that the huge piece of publicity that then ended up coming two weeks after publication was the Reese Book Club pick. But even prior to that, it was nice that all of our publicity ended up landing basically within the first week of on sale. It doesn't always happen that way just because we have no influence over what reviews we can get, when they're going to run them. I mean, really, I have so much admiration for our publicists because that to me is like the hardest, most thankless job because you're, you know, you want to do the best for your book and you have so little control over what's going to come back. Um, But we were lucky the reviews came in. There was a New York Times book review review that uh, came in in the crime column and that all landed within the first week or two. So those first two weeks of on sale, you know, they weren't huge numbers, but it did pretty nicely for a debut. And then of course the Reese pick happened and then uh, the sales started to climb from there. Did you only find out about Reese two weeks after publication? Was this something that you guys find out about way in advance of you announcing it? It's not way in advance. (laughs) That would be so wonderful. But it is such a happy surprise when it happens. So forward the crawdad saying, I think we found out about two weeks before publication. I can't actually remember now if it was enough time for us to sticker all the stock that was in the warehouse or if I think we were only able to add it to future print runs. So I can't remember exactly even if the books that were on the bookshelves, you know, showed that they were a Reese pick or not. But it did, it was at on sale, it was an indie next pick and it had a few of those like Amazon or Apple best of the month kind of things. So there was support elsewhere. It was definitely um, one that we had been championing, that Putnam had been championing and had been wanting to build. There were a couple of those pre-publication events, like you mentioned, and it's definitely one that Putnam was trying to put its everything behind, even before then the the Reese pick came. Delia's publicist is Katie McKee, who I think is one of the best publicists in the business. Yes. I just, I I absolutely adore her. She's, She's just so brilliant. Delia is such a lovely person. I was lucky enough to get to meet her once at an event and we chatted and she actually read my book because my book is based in South Africa and she has spent time in South Africa and I spoke about the canned lion hunting business in South Africa which she knows a lot about so we had a very brief chat and something that strikes me about Delia is how accessible she is to her readers. She replies to them on Instagram, she's incredibly grateful and and humble about the success she's had. How important is that for emerging writers to keep in mind? Um, And how important is that for you as an editor, knowing that a writer is going to interact with their readers? Because these days, it's quite essential. In the days of social media, readers want to be able to reach out and chat to their favorite writers. I think it's very helpful. You know, it's not a deal breaker by any means. And some authors, I think our marketing team always says that if it doesn't come naturally to you, your readers will also know that. I think that it's always important on social media that authenticity is 
is there. And I think if you are being authentic, your readers will see that and there is a real connection that can then be made. If it's not something that comes naturally to you, I don't think any publishers or I hope that they're not going to strong arm you into posting like once a week or something, because if your heart is not in it, if you don't like to engage in that way, it's not going to really work. I think it's a nice bonus if your author is talented in that area or is really interested in that area and can engage naturally through those mediums. But I, I don't think it's a requirement. Sort of like I said, where I don't like to read the bio before I read the story. I'm certainly not looking anybody up on social media or hoping that they have like a social media presence or something. And it's also something that our marketing team and most publishers marketing teams, I would think, will work with you on and say, let's figure out what does feel natural for you or is it a newsletter rather than being on Instagram or Facebook? Also, once you get to the level that Delia is at, there are just more readers who are trying to reach out to you. I don't think it's a make or break. I don't ever want an author to have like a nervous breakdown because they're not doing, they feel like they're not doing the social media right or something like that's not going to be the make or break for your book. But it is, if you have a lot of energy and you want to connect with your readers, it is a great venue to be able to do that through. And I will also say, if you do like magically have a hundred thousand Twitter followers or something, that's definitely helpful. But there's never a one-to-one conversion rate from like you have 100,000 Twitter followers, 100,000 people are going to buy your book. Did you know that 70% of all books are sold online via e-commerce? If you're an author wondering how you can get some of that market share, this is for you. Hi, I'm your co-host Carly Waters, and I'm here to tell you how writers can work on their author brand to build an audience and convert those followers into book buyers. Do you ever wonder why so many authors publish their books and later say they didn't sell as many copies as they wanted? It happens over and over, and it's all over social media. Authors really think it's a them problem, but not always. They really just weren't shown the way. And I don't want you guys to launch a book and show up at book events and have two people in the chairs. I have helped clients launch books to the bestseller list for over 15 years. I have now built a six-module, 10-hour course with all my knowledge, and that will give you the craft and book business information that you won't find anywhere else. And there's an app. Over 100 of you have already joined my new course. And writer Siobhan Moore said, I'm halfway through the course and grieving that I didn't have this information sooner. There's really nowhere else to find it. Worth every penny. Thank you, Siobhan. If you want all that info and everything that will change the course of your writing career, go to carlywaters.com course to learn more and use discount code POD15 for the month of April at checkout. That's POD, P-O-D 15 at checkout over at carlywaters.com course. Hi everyone, this is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. 
If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. Let's talk about the kind of books you have published. So you've published all kinds, thrillers, erotic thrillers, romance, historical fiction, humor. They're all so different from one another. What ties them together? What is it that you are looking for when you pick up a manuscript? I'm looking for that emotional connection. I often say I'm looking either to be deeply moved or wildly entertained and nowhere in between. (laughs) I want one of those feelings. And for me, the thrillers, they can be wildly entertaining, take you completely out of your life. For the more kind of historical fiction or women's fiction, I'm looking for something that's deeply moving or inspiring in some way. I'm a real romantic at heart. And I don't just mean that in sort of love romance. I mean, like that idea of the world, that the world is beautiful and that a book should touch your heart and help remind you what is beautiful about humanity. I mean, the world is a shit storm. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, the world is a complete and utter shit storm. And I just want to be reminded that there is integrity and that humans are capable of such deep, like we can touch one another, we can care for one another, we can move one another. And I, that's what I look for in the reads that I absolutely love. I think that's what I felt in Where the Crawdad Sang was that there was this deeply human heart to the book and it inspired me in some way. I have actually moved away a bit from publishing thrillers, I think as a result maybe of having children. Um, I have a three and a half year old and a one year old and I just couldn't read about like death anymore. (laughs) I'm starting to come back to it more of the sort of suspense, like um, domestic suspense as it's called. But for a while there, I really couldn't do that. But I do also, I love escapist fiction. And I think that comes back to the just wanting to help people inspire them. I think escape is also a necessary part of the shitstorm world that we're living in. So I was looking at most of, of the authors that you've published are women. And then you acquired Richard Roper's How Not to Die Alone, which is now being renamed as Something to Live For. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I was going to ask you about that, but definitely that ties into what you've said, because that book has huge heart. It looked at loneliness, it looked at how we connect to each other. Um, and, it, and it was a really, really heartwarming read. I loved it. That book with its title changing, that's quite unusual, isn't it? Why, why did that happen? That happened because one of our accounts specifically asked us to change it and said they would take more copies if we changed it. But also the paperback was due to come out in the middle of the pandemic and it was called How Not to Die Alone. And one of the biggest heartbreaks of this pandemic is that it has literally forced so many people to die alone and for families not to be able to be there for their loved ones. And so it made a lot of sense to us that having a title that was a bit more inspiring, like something to live for, would just hit a better emotional note, taking into consideration the world that we're publishing into. And that's something that you always have to do. I mean, the world is changing so fast right now that sometimes you do have to rethink your title much later than you thought you would, or you have to rethink like how you're talking about the book or the marketing campaign that you're doing, because it's so important to be sensitive to readers and know that you're reaching them where they are. And I used to think that a title was self-evident and that readers would just get it. And then with my last book that came out, which is called, If You Want to Make God Laugh, and that came from the Jewish saying, man plans, God laughs. So I thought it was pretty evident that 
my readers would know this is a story about people who were planning things that didn't work out and, you know, that their life went on these tangents. And so many reviews I've seen have been people saying, I really love this book, but the title doesn't make any sense because this wasn't a funny book at all. And <laughs> you go, well, you know, it, it wasn't meant to be a funny book. It, you know, it was meant to show how our plans make God laugh because you know, things are not always going to work out the way they do. So, yeah, but um, with COVID, I could definitely understand the, the title change for that book. Have you as an editor ever asked an author upfront before you've signed them on to work on revisions, to do rewrites? Because I've been chatting to so many authors as part of this series, and many of them are saying that they didn't sell the novel in the first round of submissions, that the novel went out, they got a whole bunch of feedback from editors. They then worked on the book for another six months, revised, resubmitted. And I'm wondering, you know, if that's something you've ever done and then gone on to acquire a book or if it's a case of, no, this book isn't right for me and and then you're able to walk away from it. There have been a few cases where I have given feedback. I don't think I've ever actually gone on to acquire them. And it's every editor is constantly learning. They're learning about how they can best do their job. They're learning about what works for them. And I think something that I have learned over the last 10 or 11 years is that once I have an initial impression of something, it is very hard for me to set that aside. And I think that's a part of what allows me to just know pretty definitively if I love something or if I don't. But also as an editor, you're constantly second guessing yourself, or at least I am, because I, I know that I can make a book better or like maybe this book would be better. And there are only so many times that you fall head over heels completely in love with something. So, you know, you have to have a vision for what that book could be. But I have learned over time that for myself personally, if I give notes, I am not able to kind of get past that initial or I haven't I haven't yet been able to get past that initial impression. I do also think that I mean, it is a really big it's a big commitment when as an editor, you give notes at all. It's a time commitment. You know that you're giving some kind of even though everybody knows you're not guaranteeing you're going to be able to acquire the book. There's always going to be sort of emotional expectations. And I always try to take into account what the author is going through. I don't want to ever raise hopes that are going to just, I know I can't follow through on. I don't really tend to do that anymore. But I know that a lot of younger editors, sometimes that's the only way that they can end up acquiring because they need the read to be a certain way before they can get the team to be on board in order to be able to acquire it. I also do always hope that my expertise in the notes that I give, even if I don't end up acquiring it, I hope that it helps the author and the agent because they'll have, I do think, a better manuscript that they can then go out with. Great editorial notes, even in rejections, are hugely helpful because you as the author have probably spent two, three years on this book. You can't see the wood for the trees. You're so mired in it and your agent has read it so many times, et cetera, et cetera. So getting a fresh read and getting useful notes in terms of being able to use them for rewrites, I think is a gift to most authors and many of them don't see it as such. They just see it as a rejection. And so they don't incorporate those those notes quite as effectively. Have you ever worked with an author, and you don't have to give us any names here, that has been super resistant to editorial feedback, who's been super resistant to, to changes? And how is that something that you're able to navigate? Yes. And it is very hard to navigate. <laughs> I mean, again, I think you live and you learn. It tended to happen more earlier in my career. And I think that I probably wasn't as adept at giving the feedback. 
as I said, the relationship is completely dependent upon trust. And as you said, most of your authors, they've been working on these books for two, three years, maybe even longer. And that care deserves a gentle delivery of the edits that you need to make. And um, that is when I learned that I should always have a phone call with the author before I send my editorial notes, because I think being able to talk it through and for them to hear in my voice the love that I have for their work and the care that I have for them helps uh, to ease the blow of some of the requests a little bit. I also started to have my assistant read through my comments to because I do my line edits and my comments in the manuscript. And I started to have my assistant read through the comments to say, are they as diplomatic as they should be? And if they're not, flag them for me so I can reword them a little bit. That's, those are the things that you learn and that come with experience is... That's a really good point. I remember with my first novel before it went out on submission, we had it looked at editorially in-house with the agency. And the person who did the edit was very skilled. They had a lot of expertise. They had some great points. But there were actual parts that they highlight and they said, oh my God, I'm rolling my eyes right now. And when it came back to me, this is what I saw. And apparently my agent had already been through it and taken out the worst of the comments. And that's the kind of thing that makes a writer just want to curl up in a ball and and give up writing forever. So as the editor, it is a bit of hand-holding, making it better, being a bit of a therapist and certainly not delivering these throat punches in, in terms of editorial feedback. So for the writers out there who are dreaming of being the next Delia Owens, because every writer dreams that their novel will be involved in a bidding war, that their novel will hit the New York Times bestseller list. Is there any kind of advice that could be practical or or useful to them? Because something that I'm discovering, and I don't know if you as editors are discovering this, is that borders or the lines between genres are blurring so much. It used to be that a book was very much one thing or it was very much another thing. And you always had to explain to a publisher what genre your book fell into. And nowadays we're seeing books that are part horror, part thriller, part whatever. Um, I think it does still sometimes make it harder when a book falls between genres. I guess this is a twofold answer. On the one hand, it's harder because one of the questions we always ask, and I guess this is more of a traditional point of view, is where is it going to be shelved in the bookstore? Is it going to be shelved in the general fiction section? Is it going to be shelved in the mystery section? Sometimes it's a bit more of a question, I think, even on the nonfiction side of things. But with so many more people, at least especially now during the pandemic, buying online, that maybe matters slightly less. But at the same time, you still, as a publisher, you're always asking yourself the question, do I know how to find the audience for this book? And do I know where they are? And if the book falls truly between genres, it it can be harder to find them. I think with Where the Crawdads Sing, I have always been surprised when people talk about it as suspense or people talk about it as a mystery, because to me, what I fell in love with was the love story and that kind of coming of age story. But so where the crowd, I think it really does kind of bridge the genres. And I think, I hope maybe that is creating more of a space for more of these kinds of books. But I remember, I mean, that did make it hard to talk about, made it hard for me to figure out where we were going to put the book. So I think in terms of advice, I think if the writing is feeling easy to you, your readers will sense that. If the writing is coming, if it's really feeling like work in a certain scene or for a certain character, your reader will also feel that way. It will also feel like work for your reader. So I think that doesn't mean don't keep working at at like throw away something that's not coming naturally, 
But I think where it's coming easily, the voices that are coming easily to you, lean into those because that is going to be more enjoyable for your reader to experience. Like if you think that you're writing a thriller, but the voice is really humorous, maybe it is like women's fiction. You think you're writing a romance, but it's too biting or something, or it's too edgy. You're writing, maybe you're writing a different kind of novel. I think just being open to what does come naturally to you, maybe more than having a fixed idea about exactly what it is you're setting out to do. Of course, that is so subjective. Every every writer's experience and their approach is so different. In terms of kind of chasing trends, I think that's it can be hard to do. It depends on what kind of writer you want to be, I guess. There are writers who feel they really want their book to be unique or they really want it to be seen as sort of more literary. They don't want to be writing into a trend. And I think that's a certain kind of writer. I think there are also writers who want to be writing with higher frequency or to or specifically to be part of a trend. And I think if that's the case, find a really great story, especially if you're doing historical fiction or something, just find a really great story to tell and then people it with the characters. Sometimes you want to be the person who's creating the new trend, but that's a lot harder to do, I think. Tara, it was so wonderful getting to chat with you today. Thank you so much for taking the time out and for sharing your experience and your expertise. It's not every day we get to listen to the uh, experiences of the bestseller whisperer. So thank you for that. And here's a sneak preview of next week's episode. While we were talking about sex in writing, I laughed so much when I found out that there is an award called the Literary Reviews Bad Sex in Fiction Award. Now, for the listeners who don't know what this is, I just want to give you a bit of a background. So since 1993, the Bad Sex in Fiction Award has honored the year's most outstandingly awful scene of sexual depiction in an otherwise good novel. And this award tends to focus on um, literary fiction. So drawing attention to the poorly written, redundant, or downright cringeworthy passages of sexual description in modern fiction. (laughs) The prize is not intended to cover pornographic or expressly erotic literature. In 2019, there were two winners. Apparently, there there was a tie. And it's not surprising at all to me that both of these winners were men. And that's it for today's episode. If you have any questions about writing or publishing, please email me at theshitaboutwriting at gmail.com and I'll do my best to get them answered for you. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10am to 5pm Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup 
for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on.